I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter uh, 18 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come uh, this morning to John chapter 18, verse 1, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through 12. And hopefully you picked up a copy of the, uh, the notes uh, as you came into the auditorium this morning. If you did, you will note that the title of the message this morning is, I am arrested. I am uh, arrested. And hopefully uh, that title will make uh, much sense uh, to you as we get into our passage uh, for today. Uh, one of my most memorable moments from my childhood happened while our family was driving to church on a Sunday morning when I was around the age of of nine. And we were about a mile from our church when my dad saw up ahead a police officer who had pulled someone over. And so my dad, as he usually did on such occasions said to us kids, he said, look, kids, the police have caught a bad guy. So the four of us kids sat up and looked out the window and saw the police car up ahead in the distance by the side of the road. And as our car drew closer to that police car, we were able to see the bad guy that he had pulled over and to our horror It was our pastor. (laughs) And I can't tell you what that did to our little brains uh, to see that on a Sunday morning on our way to church. uh, We kids were mesmerized by the scene of our pastor standing behind his car and getting a ticket from the police officer. And we stared very impolitely as we drove by our pastor. Uh, saw us uh, as we drove by, and he did his best to give us an awkward pastoral wave uh, to us. And I don't even think we thought to wave back because we were so shocked at what we saw. That was not just a memorable moment uh, from my childhood. I actually think of that incident whenever I'm on my way to church on a Sunday morning, especially when I'm within a mile of the church. I think I try to obey traffic laws as best I can every day of the week, but I am extra obedient on Sunday mornings, especially within a mile of the church, because I'd rather not give your children that same memory on a Sunday morning, although some of you would love for such a memory, wouldn't you? I begin on this note because in our passage today, we observe something far more serious than a traffic stop taking place. We actually witness Jesus Christ, who never did anything wrong, getting arrested in front of his disciples by hundreds of law enforcement officers with an arrest that will result in an unjust trial And then his crucifixion and death the following day. How about that? 
Nowadays, such a travesty would be all over the news. But it's what happened to Jesus, though, as John tells the story, what will stand out to us is how Jesus is in control of this situation from beginning to end. All through the Gospel of John, John has been telling us that Jesus' hour or Jesus' time has not yet come. Prior attempts have been made to arrest Jesus, yet all of them have failed because his hour had not yet come. Yet on this particular Thursday evening, Jesus said to his father back in John 17, I believe in verse 1, the hour has come. Glorify your son. This fateful Thursday evening began in John 13 in a guest room or the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And you will recall that Jesus had washed his disciples' feet and announced that one of them was going to betray him. He exposed Judas as the betrayer And he told Judas to get on with the business of doing what his heart was set on doing. And so Judas left the room and went out into the night, leaving only the 11 in the room together with Jesus. We then saw how Jesus took some time to teach the 11 many things and gave them many assurances to prepare them for the road ahead. And he culminated his teaching with his prayer in John 17, which we spent the last month studying. It is after Jesus concludes his prayer that the events of chapter 18 take place. And as we look at verses 1 through 12 of John 18 today, we will observe five actions of Jesus which resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. Five actions of Jesus which resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. What happens in our text today happens in the darkness of night with haunting shadows being cast by lamps and flickering torches. Yet in this darkest of moments, we will see a brilliant manifestation of the glory of Jesus, who is most worthy of our trust. Even in his arrest, Jesus, we will see, is utterly impressive. So five actions of Jesus that resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. Action number one, you can fill in the blank if you have the notes with you. He went forth to the garden of his arrest. He went forth to the garden of his arrest. Now, earlier this evening, Jesus, as I mentioned, was in the upper room with his disciples. But then he had said back in John 14, verse 31, get up, let us go from here. And it could be that they all got up and they went somewhere else in Jerusalem at that point. Or it's also possible that the disciples lingered in the room and Jesus simply continued to speak to them and pray for them from that place. Either way, Jesus has finished his prayer and John tells us in verse one, look at the text, 
that he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Notice those words, he went forth, which literally means he went out. And you might want to mark those words because you're going to see them again in this passage. In this verse, John is making it clear that Jesus would have gone out of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem and then passed through the ravine of Kidron, which runs alongside the outside of the eastern wall of Jerusalem. So Jesus would have crossed over this ravine and then traveled upward until he encountered what John calls a garden. As for where this garden was, Luke tells us in his gospel that it was on the Mount of Olives, which was just past the ravine that Jesus crossed. Mark and Matthew tell us that it was a field that went by the name Gethsemane, which literally means oil press, which indicates that this was a grove of olive trees somewhere on the slopes of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem. We learn from the other gospel accounts that upon entering this garden, Jesus became deeply grieved and distressed. And he prayed three times saying to the father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. We also learn from Luke 22 verses 43 and 44, that it was while praying in this way that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And Luke also tells us that Jesus' agony was so great that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Well, being the last of the gospel writers, the apostle John knows that the other gospel accounts have covered this part of the story quite capably, so he doesn't say anything about such things. But in verse 2, John says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And for this reason, Jesus already knew that Judas would bring the men to arrest Jesus to this very spot. And this tells us that Jesus is coming to this garden not to hide, but to be found. He knew that Judas would know that this is where Jesus could be found, and this is why Jesus went forth with his disciples to this very spot, so that he could be arrested. And this sets us up for the second act of Jesus, which resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. Act number two, he went forth to the men arresting him. He went forth to the men arresting him. Observe what happens in verse three. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priest, And the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas is the primary actor here in verse 3. And 
And this is an astonishing number of men that Judas brings with him. On paper, a Roman cohort was a thousand men ruled over by a commander of this thousand men. In reality, though, a cohort would often just be 600 soldiers. And sometimes the word translated cohort here could refer to a group as small as 200 men. So we don't know exactly how many soldiers were here on this occasion, but we are safe in saying that this group of Roman soldiers was anywhere from 200 to 600 men. And even if the number was only 200 men, that's a staggering number of soldiers involved in arresting Jesus. And the fact that these soldiers are present indicates that the Jewish leadership had convinced the Roman commander that Jesus posed a threat to Roman rule and must be arrested. These are not the only men involved in this party that is seeking to arrest Jesus. John also tells us that there were officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. In other words, from the Sanhedrin. These would be the temple police and the enforcement officers of the Sanhedrin, the highest ranking authoritative body in Israel. These officers were the very men who were sent to arrest Jesus back in John chapter 7, but they came back empty-handed because Jesus' hour had not yet come. But now they are here to arrest Jesus. However you look at this, this is a large group of men that are coming to arrest Jesus, right? In fact, you can write this reference down, Matthew 26, verse 55. Matthew describes this crowd, and he doesn't just use the word crowd to describe the size of this contingent that's coming to arrest Jesus. He speaks of the group as crowds, plural, comprising more than one crowd of people. So this is a very large contingent consisting of hundreds of men to arrest Jesus. And here in verse 3, John tells us that they came there with what? With lanterns and torches, reminding us that it is night and also revealing the fact that these men expected Jesus to hide away in the dark recesses of the garden And they were prepared to use their lanterns and their torches to find him wherever he would be hiding. And as the commentator William Hendrickson points out, how ironic this is that they would come looking for Jesus with lanterns and torches. These men are coming out, Hendrickson says, with torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. John also tells us that these men came with weapons, which Matthew tells us included swords and clubs, which lets us know that they anticipated resistance in their efforts to arrest Jesus, and they were prepared to meet that resistance with lethal force. 
So we have hundreds of men coming to arrest Jesus on this night. Imagine you yourself are at a park somewhere and a few hundred police and military personnel with weapons drawn show up in that park to arrest you. This is what is happening to Jesus here. Yet observe what Jesus does in verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Notice those words, went forth again, like we saw back in verse 1. And John tells us that Jesus went forth knowing all the things that were coming upon him, which means that Jesus knew that he would be arrested. He knew that he would receive an unfair trial, and he knew that he would be condemned to death. He knew that he would be scourged and then crucified upon a cross the next day, and he knew that he would bear our sins upon his own person and bear the wrath of Almighty God upon himself on our behalf. Jesus knew every bit of these things that were coming upon him. And what does he do? John tells us that he went forth towards these men that are arresting him. He didn't hide behind the enclosure of this garden. No, he went forth He didn't run away from these men who had come to arrest him. He went forth toward them to meet his fate. And as John tells the story here, he went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? It is probably right around this point that Judas kissed Jesus, which the other gospel writers tell us about, but John does not. Observe their response in verse 5. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. That's who they seek. In other words, we seek Jesus the man from Nazareth. And this brings us to the third act of Jesus, which resulted in his arrest on the night Before his crucifixion, act number three, he identified himself as the God they came to arrest. He identified himself as the God they came to arrest. Observe Jesus' answer in verse five, where John tells us that, look at the text, he said to them, I am he. Now, you'll notice in the New American Standard that the word he is in italics, which means that this word is not in the Greek text. Literally, all Jesus is saying here is ego eimi, which means I am, which on one level is not an unusual expression for a person to use to identify himself In such a moment. In fact, back in John chapter 9, when people were looking at the formerly blind man 
who had been healed, and they were wondering, is that really the guy that was once blind? This formerly blind man said to everyone looking at him, Ego, Amy. That's it. In John 9, verse 9. And in such a situation, everyone would understand that he's saying, I'm, I'm the guy. I am he. And this is what Jesus is saying here as well. But it just so happens that in saying, Ego, Amy, Jesus is also speaking his divine name as well. He is saying exactly what he said to the Jews back in chapter 8 when he said to them before Abraham was, I am, ego me." And on that prior occasion, they understood his point exactly and picked up stones to stone him. And now here in this moment in John 18, Jesus who is himself the great I am, is saying to these men, I am. Observe what John says at the end of verse 5. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with whom? With them. So here is Jesus and his disciples in one band, and there are the Roman soldiers and officers from the Sanhedrin in the other band, and John wants us to know that Judas was standing with the crowd that had come to arrest Jesus. He was not standing with Jesus. Judas has chosen sides, and he has cast his lot with the men who have come to arrest Jesus. He was standing with them which is the wrong group to be standing with in this situation. By this time tomorrow, Judas will be in hell. But today, this evening, he keeps company with these enemies of Christ who have come to arrest Jesus. Observe what happens in verse 6. So when he, Jesus, said to them, I am he, or I am. Look at how they respond. They drew back and fell to the ground. Perhaps it was the authoritative way in which Jesus spoke the words, Ego, Amy, in a manner that had the authority of heaven behind it. Perhaps it was the majesty of his voice, or the look in his eyes, or the purity of his countenance. Perhaps it was the courage of Jesus to go forth to these arresting men and freely identify himself as the one that they had come to arrest. Perhaps it was all of these things, and maybe even more. Whatever the reason... As the commentator Leon Morris says, these men, and I quote, had come out to arrest a fleeing peasant, yet in the gloom they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who rather than running away comes out to meet them and speaks to them in the very language of deity. 
unquote. And when Jesus says to the men, I am, according to verse 6, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And keep in mind, Judas himself would have been among the men who fall back and fall to the ground. The word translated drew back here in verse 6 is the same word that's used in John 666. John chapter 6, verse 66, to speak of people who withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. This response of the men, John's choice of this word here tells us that at least for the moment, these men who came to arrest Jesus had lost their nerve about carrying out their mission, and they were ready to leave. Only Jesus won't let them leave. John says they drew back and what? They fell to the ground as if they had been vanquished by a larger army. In this moment, one would get the impression that these soldiers and officers are not arresting Jesus. It is he who is arresting them and leveling them to the ground with the power of his name. In all of John's gospel, there is nothing like this moment that we have right here with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am and with hundreds of his enemies falling before him in fear. This is Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, your Savior and mine, standing tall before these powerful men and every one of the hundreds of these men are lying on the ground in his presence. As the commentator David Garland says, these men find themselves hopelessly outnumbered by one. Without a doubt, Jesus is flexing here in order to make it abundantly clear to his disciples that he's the one in charge of this situation, not the arresting party. Jesus has knocked them all back and he can keep them all paralyzed with fear as he walks away if that's what Jesus wanted to do. Yet observe what Jesus does in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he or I am. Jesus is urging these men to get on with the business of arresting him, telling these men that He's the one that they came to arrest, so they should do what they came to do. And this sets us up for the fourth act of Jesus, which resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. Act four, he commanded them to let his disciples go free. He commanded them to let his disciples go free. Jesus is clearly the Lord of this moment And he is the one giving directions. And he has a specific command to give to these men. 
He has just had them repeat the fact that they came to arrest him in particular, and he has just identified himself as the one that they have come to arrest. So he wants them to limit themselves to only arresting him. So he says in verse 8, So if you seek me, now here's the command, let these go their way. People being arrested by Roman soldiers, you just don't do this. You don't give directions. But Jesus is. Let these. This is an imperative. He's commanding them, let these men, these disciples of mine, go their way. That's my instruction to you who have come to arrest me. Jesus protects his disciples here According to verse 9, look at the text. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. You can write these references down in John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. And then in John 17, verse 12, Jesus is speaking to the Father, and he speaks of those whom the Father had given to him. And he says in John 17, 12, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, to fulfill Scripture. Clearly, John views Jesus' language back in John 17, 12, as on the level of Scripture, and he views Jesus' actions here in our passage today, in protecting his disciples from arrest as fulfilling, as a partial fulfillment of the word which he had spoken earlier this evening when he said to his father, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. What John says in verse 9 makes it clear that Jesus views it as his mission to preserve the lives of each of his disciples right now in this moment so that they can live on and go on to fulfill the mission that he has called them to in the days to come. It is important that Jesus not lose even one of these 11 disciples. It's important that not a one of them be killed before they can carry out the mission that he has given to them. Now, the day will come when these disciples will undergo things like arrest and persecution and even martyrdom, but this is not their hour for that. And Jesus will see to it that he preserves their life up until the moment that their hour for such things arrives. Given the way Jesus acts on their behalf in this moment, the disciples will know that when their moments of arrest and persecution and even martyrdom do come, such things will only happen to them in Jesus' time and by his allowance. As one writer says, no one touches the church without the permission of, of God himself. And you and I can know this to be true for ourselves as well. When it fits God's purposes to protect us from persecution, he will do that. When it serves his purposes to allow us to be persecuted, he will 
do that. No one touches us, though, without the permission of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus also knew that allowing his disciples to be arrested in this moment would have been spiritually ruinous to them. They were not ready to handle this. For now, here in John 18, we see Jesus on the cusp of his crucifixion and his death, and yet he's thinking about his disciples and he's seeking to protect them from the injustice that is about to befall him. And this turns out to be no small feat to protect his disciples from arrest, given the way one of them behaves in this moment. And this brings us to the fifth act of Jesus, which resulted in his arrest on the night before his crucifixion. Number five, he insisted that Peter let him be arrested. He insisted that Peter let him be arrested. If you expected Peter to find a way to make an appearance in this story, then he doesn't disappoint you here. Observe what happens in verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword. Someone really should have taken that away from him. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Everything was kind of under control until this moment. Jesus has perfect control over the men coming to arrest him, but Peter is going crazy and is out of control. When you see the word sword here, don't think of a long sword like a sword fighter might have. Think of a dagger or a long knife. And John tells us here that Peter drew his weapon and then lashes out and strikes the high priest's slave. And as a result, he cut off his right ear. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over what to make of the fact that Peter cuts off the ear of this slave of the high priest. It is very, very possible that Peter tried to kill this man, but his blow was so clumsy that he only chopped the man's ear off, which would make Peter's effort at defending Jesus laughable in its clumsiness. But it is also possible that Peter was aiming for this man's right ear for the express purpose of leaving an insulting injury. As Chuck Swindoll explains, cutting off an ear or nose was considered especially humiliating, especially since Jews barred such maimed individuals from entering the temple. In fact, in his Antiquities of the Jews, the Jewish historian Josephus tells the story about a high priest who was deliberately disqualified from his office as a result of having his ear mutilated. Well, the high priest is not present in this moment, but it could be that 
Peter is doing the next best thing, at least in his own mind, by rendering the high priest's slave unable forever thereafter to enter the temple to worship God. Whatever Peter's intention was, and whatever his motive was in doing what he's done to this slave, he is damaging the personal property of the high priest, which is a serious offense that would require Peter to go to prison and forfeit his own right ear, according to Jewish law, and possibly be killed, put to death if it was concluded that his intent was, after all, to kill this man. Peter had to know this, but in his mind, he probably thought that he was going to be arrested and die right along with Jesus anyway. And so he thought, I'm not going to go down without a fight. Earlier this evening, Peter had promised Jesus that he was ready to die for Jesus. And in his mind, right here, he is showing himself true to his promise. But Peter's act might not be so brave as we might think. It's possible that when Jesus said, I am, and caused all of the arresting party to lurch backward and fall paralyzed to the ground, that Peter might have observed that and thought, this is the moment to go ahead and attack and kill everyone while they are incapacitated. Kind of like Simeon and Levi did to the men of Shechem back in Genesis 34 when they were incapacitated. Whatever Peter's intention, I should point out that John is being more forthcoming than the other three gospel writers in telling us who it was that cut off this man's ear. Every gospel writer talks about this act of violence as having happened But Matthew simply says it was one of those who were with Jesus. Mark simply says it was one of those who stood by who committed this act. And Luke simply says it was one of those who were around Jesus who did it. But John comes right out and says, it was Peter. (laughs) However you look at this, this is a desperate act by a desperate man And it is pathetic given the size of the contingent that has come to arrest Jesus. Peter's act is almost also comical in the face of the power of Jesus. As one writer says, and I quote, Jesus has just floored the whole company with a word. And poor Peter thinks his sword is necessary to save the day. Attaboy, Peter. Well, how does Jesus respond to Peter's action? Observe what Jesus does in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? About a year and a half ago, United States Representative Lauren Boebert was speaking at a Christian event, and she was talking on the topic of gun ownership and gun rights, and she spoke um, in her speech about people on Twitter who oppose her viewpoint, 
And about these people, she said, and I quote, they like to say, oh, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. How many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? They say to her. And then Bobert said to this audience, and I quote, well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. With all due respect to this woman serving our country, she could not be more wrong. Actually, the whole point of John's telling of this story of Jesus' arrest is that Jesus did have the power to keep his government from killing him and arresting him. He flattened them all to the ground with a word, and he could have kept them down if he chose to do that. And write this reference down. In Matthew 26, verse 54, Jesus responded to Peter's act of violence by saying to him, And I quote, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You say, how many is 12 legions of angels? 72,000 angels. Just think about that for a minute. In the Old Testament, just one angel. Just one angel from the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Jesus reminds Peter that he can call 72,000 of such angels to handle this group that has come to arrest him. So put your little sword away, Peter. I don't need your help. Jesus had incredible firepower at his disposal. He had the power of his word. He had the power of angels to prevent his arrest here. And he had Peter's help for whatever that was worth. Yet he didn't call upon any of that help. And the question is why? In verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? Notice that Jesus doesn't refer to this cup as the cup which these men are giving me. No, he refers to this cup as the cup which the Father has given me. No soldier or temple police officer could ever give Jesus this cup to drink. Only the Father could. And Jesus is intent on fulfilling the scripture and drinking this cup of suffering in obedience to his father's will. Over the previous three hours or few hours in this very garden, Jesus had prayed to the father for this cup to be removed from him. But each time he prayed that prayer, he would come around to saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. The cup Jesus is talking about is the cup of his suffering, the cup of his arrest, the cup of his trial, the cup of his scourging and his crucifixion. It is also the cup of him as the Lamb of God bearing our sins upon himself and bearing the wrath of God for the sins of mankind so that he might, through his death, bring salvation to sinners like you, And me, 
and Lauren Boebert. This is the cup which the father is now giving to Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink it? According to Luke's account, Jesus didn't just rebuke Peter for what he did to this slave of the high priest and chopping off his ear. In Luke twenty-two fifty-one, Luke tells us that Jesus touched the slave's ear and healed him, completely undoing the damage that Peter had done and probably in the process keeping Peter from being arrested. But here in John's account, John simply focuses on what the arresting party does in verse 12, saying, so the Roman cohort and the commander, this word commander literally means commander of a thousand. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested whom? Jesus and bound whom? Him. John's language here makes it clear that it was only Jesus who was arrested. As one writer says, these men who were trained to take orders from their superiors obey the instructions of their captive and arrest only Jesus and let the disciples go free. And it's actually a remarkable thing that these men do not arrest Peter for what Peter did. But John wants us to know that these men let Peter and the others go because Jesus commanded them to let them go free. At the very end of verse 12, John tells us that this arresting party bound Jesus with either irons chains or ropes. Jesus could so easily have prevented this binding, but he does not. Once they bound him, Jesus could have easily dissolved the chains or the ropes with just a thought, but he doesn't do that. He lets himself be arrested and lets himself be bound. So at this point of the gospel of John, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and loved by the Father from all of eternity past. This one is arrested and bound and in the custody of Roman soldiers and the Jewish temple police. And according to Matthew 26, verse 56, it is at this point that all the disciples left him and fled. And this is where we'll stop for today. But let's ponder a few things as we wrap up this morning. Uh, first of all, let's observe that in this passage, Jesus actually allows and injustice to be done to him. He allows himself to be arrested, knowing that he would ultimately prevail through that injustice and bring salvation to the world. 
Right now, the headline reads, Rome and Sanhedrin unite in arresting Jesus. Or, Jesus arrested and bound like a dangerous criminal. But one day, the headline will read, Jesus reveals the love of God for the world through the cross. The injustice being done against Jesus right now is not going to be the end of the story. And the injustices done against any of God's people are never the end of the story either. God will always cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This was true for Jesus, and it will always be true for you if you belong to him. Even when you find yourself on the receiving end of some injustice. Jesus didn't bring salvation to the world by refusing to ever allow any injustice to be done against him. He allowed injustice to be rendered against him. He allowed himself to be arrested and tried and scourged and killed upon a cross. And then he took up his life again and ascended to the Father to bring salvation to you and to me. And even to some of the very people that were involved in his crucifixion. Also in this story, we see that Jesus is in perfect control. He is in charge, not those who have come to arrest him. I think we've all seen people walking their dogs on a leash and it's obvious who's walking whom, right? Sometimes it's the dog walking the human who's being pulled along behind the dog. But in this story, guys, Jesus is walking the dogs. Yes, even the dogs who have come to arrest him, yet he's allowing himself, though he's fully in control, to suffer the indignity of arrest so that he can, through that, set in motion a chain of events that will bring salvation to you and to me. What a savior. Yet here in this story of Jesus' arrest, we do have a brief moment when Jesus receives at least some of the glory that he's due, right? As the men arresting him fall down before him, we, we kind of really dig that. We rejoice in such a moment. Now, once they recover their sensibilities, they proceed with their evil intentions and they arrest Jesus, but there's a brief Shining moment that makes our hearts rejoice when Jesus at least receives some of the recognition that he is due as the great I am. Though this moment is short-lived, it does point all of us to the coming day when at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what that promise that Paul states in Philippians 2 means is that a day is coming when even these men who are now arresting Jesus, who fell before him on this occasion, even these men are going to fall down before Jesus once again and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
There is coming a day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and all people everywhere will bow before Jesus, falling before him and honor him for the Messiah King that he is. On another front, let's learn something from the way that Jesus handles Peter and this now third attempt by Peter to hinder Jesus from doing something that Jesus was seeking to do. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised. And Peter scolded Jesus and tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, saying to Jesus, this shall never happen to you. Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus stayed intent upon his mission. Evidently, he wasn't looking to Peter for ideas. Back in chapter 13, Peter tried to prevent Jesus from washing his feet, but Jesus overruled Peter's protest and changed Peter's mind and did what he wanted to do with Peter and washed his feet. And now here, Peter once again tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, and yet Jesus overrules Peter and insists that he be allowed to drink the cup that the Father has given him to drink. Nowadays, people like to think that truth comes from within us. Yet Jesus keeps shooting down Peter's truth that comes from within him and does things his own way, not Peter's way. Nowadays, people like to think of Jesus as one who affirms their every little whim. But in the Gospels, we see Jesus pushing back against Peter's ideas and overruling Peter's thoughts and staying on track to be the kind of savior that Jesus intended to be, the kind of savior that Peter really needed, one who would die for his sins and bring him salvation. The way Jesus deals with Peter here shows us that Jesus doesn't need our ideas. He doesn't need our wisdom. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need to survey us to find out our opinions and our preferences as to how he ought to do things. Jesus doesn't conform himself to our ideas. Jesus is not always the savior that we expected him to be or the savior that we might in a particular moment wish him to be, but he is always the savior that we need. And if we would just let him be the savior that he wants to be, we will find him to be a greater savior than we ever dreamed. Finally, let's appreciate the fact that Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve to drink. He allowed himself to be arrested by the wicked men of his day so that you and I would not be arrested by God's angels and thrown into the lake of fire. The father handed Jesus the cup of his wrath and Jesus drank that cup so that you and I don't have to drink it. So if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, 
saved and forgiven and justified by him. I don't know what your cup looks like this morning, but I know it doesn't contain the wrath of God because Jesus drank all of that wrath so that you wouldn't have to. Be thankful for this. Don't be a glass half empty person and don't even be a glass half full person. Whatever your circumstances, be thankful that you don't have a full glass of God's wrath to drink. And the only reason that's the case is because Jesus allowed himself to drink the cup of God's wrath for you. And if you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus for your salvation, please believe in him and call upon his name today and be saved. He would be delighted to save you. Jesus was willing to undergo the humiliation of arrest and crucifixion in order to be your savior. He was willing to drink the cup of God's judgment so that you don't have to. He was willing to swallow hell so that you would not be swallowed by hell. Who else would or even could do such things for you? If Jesus wanted to, even this morning, he could throw you down to the ground with a single word. Yet he gives you a good word, a gospel word, a loving word of salvation through him, a word that is designed to lift you up if you would only believe in him. So to paraphrase Martin Luther, man, stop defying him who can throw you down with a single word. Believe in him and let him lift you up to the highest heaven. It's why he allowed himself to be arrested and why he allowed himself to be crucified so that he could save sinners just like you and me. Let's pray together. Lord, we are uh, just so thankful for how not a ever, there's never a moment when Jesus squanders a moment to display his goodness, his grace, his power, and his glory. As we look at this passage today, Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who have been arrested and imprisoned wrongly simply because of their faith in you. We pray for them. We pray for the persecuted church around the world, Lord, uh, that you would be with them in their moment of suffering and trial, that you would comfort their hearts. And help them to see as, as you see, Lord, just as we sang earlier in our service, they maybe even right now, some of them just thinking, I don't even know what you're up to, Lord. But may they fall back on the knowledge of what they know you've done and knowing how the story is going to end with a greater glory than they can imagine. May their hearts be encouraged 
today. I can't help but see myself and Peter, Lord, who has so much zeal and love for you, and yet he lashes out, and out of zeal and love for you, Lord, he battles wrongly and with the wrong weapon. Remind us today, Lord, that we are to be engaged in battle for you, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal weapons, but they're ones that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And those weapons, we could state in a variety of ways, but at the bottom of it all, those weapons are your word, the gospel, and love as we love one another and love those who may mistreat us or persecute us or despise us or battle against us. Help us, Lord, to engage in this fight as counter-revolutionaries against the wickedness of our world that is in rebellion against you. Help us to rebel against the rebellion and to fight with the weapons of your truth your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and with love. And when injustices are done against us, Lord, there may be legal recourse we can pursue to avoid that, and that's not a bad thing to pursue Just like the Apostle Paul appealed to his citizenship as a Roman. But there are moments in your design, Lord, when injustices will be done against us and there's no way that we can escape them. Help us in such moments to know that you, Jesus, have already traveled this path. And through those injustices, you prevailed and you glorified your Father and infinite good was accomplished. And so we're not alone in such moments. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, trusting that you will work all things together for good and use us to point people to Jesus and to glorify your name. I pray that for myself and for all of my brothers and sisters, Lord. And I pray if there's any here this morning that have never come to a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus, that today you would touch their hearts. And help them to know how much you love them, that you were willing to be arrested and to die, that they might have the forgiveness of sins through you. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,